Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And this week, I'm super excited. I say that every week, but this is truly one of these fun ones. Um, Authors that I have on, I have Jeremiah Franklin. So Jeremiah, I want to say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. What's really great is I can pronounce your name (laughs) without any stumbling. (laughs) That's like, how many names can I get through without stumbling on podcasts? (laughs) So it's great. So there's a couple of reasons why I find this podcast, and I think I think our listeners will find it interesting too, is first, the book that you wrote, we'll get there, because um, it's a topic that I'm kind of interested in, but also your background history. So let's just start out, Jeremiah, and tell us and myself and the listeners what state you're in, in the Pacific Northwest. I'm in Bend, Oregon, actually. Yep, Bend. Okay, yeah, I just had an article come out in the Bend newspaper about um, the podcast. So uh, pretty excited about that. So Bend, beautiful part of Oregon. Um, is it? It's pretty big to the city, isn't it? It's definitely growing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we're you know we're we're probably close to about ninety thousand people at this point. Yeah, what part of Pacific Northwest isn't growing? Is <laughs> some right. thing, right? It's so those, yeah. yeah. Those of you listening from outside the Pacific Northwest, Bend's a terrible place to live. Yeah, it's, Don't it's cold. There. Uh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, it is cold in the winter, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you guys get the snow big yeah. time. <laughs> so so let's um, jump into, I want to dive a little bit. So listeners, you're going to have to endure Vicky's little fan here. Um, I want to dive a little bit into your background, your history. So because I was doing some reading on your, your website and um, tell me a little bit or the listeners a little bit about your background because I have a million questions and I don't know if we'll get them all done. We might have to bring you back just for this, but let's, let's start there with what you, what you've done in the past. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's been a couple of years back, but um, I was a private investigator um, for many years and uh, which was kind of a, you know, interesting job to have kind of unique. And uh, I think, you know, the, the unique perspectives that I got as a private investigator really helped me with my writing and helped me with, uh, you know, the ability to kind of figure out what people are doing without, you know, having, uh, you know, it's like you're a fly on the, on the wall when you're an investigator. And um, to that degree, you know, you can kind of watch people in their element and uh, kind of get people's true, true human nature comes out when, uh, when they don't know you're watching, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So that's the part I'm interested in because I, I claim that I'm a people watcher. Uh-huh. Um, I have a lot of family and friends that say that I've missed the boat. I should have been a PI or <laughs> investigator for cops or, you know, cause I'm just always watching behavior and people I'm like, Oh, that person's doing this and this, you know, yeah. and then I'm investigate by nature. Cause I'm, I'm a librarian and so I do historical fiction. So I'm always digging. I'm either digging history or, you know, that kind of thing. So your background is so intriguing for an author because you're right. You it's studying that, that human nature that you get to write on. So how did you get into PI work? Were you, were you a police officer or in um, that kind of field before? Uh, actually, no, my, it uh, was the family business. My father was a private investigator and actually still is, and my brother as well. So um, kind of came into the family business and um, did that for, for several years. 
And then um, actually just in it when I took a different career path and uh, yep. got into some more education stuff and uh, writing. Yep. School, so. Yeah. yeah, I did see that you you uh, went to school, right? And did you go to school as an adult student? Uh, well, you know, I went to, uh, actually UC Santa Cruz in California mm-hmm. for my undergraduate degree and I was a psych major there. So again, yeah. more of that human, uh, more human nature, man, your books have got to be loaded. <laughs> yeah. and then, uh, after that, I, you know, I ended up getting a master's degree in education and, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I work in the field of education as well. So, okay, great. Hey, so do I. So I work with yeah. a online university, full-time remote work, and uh, have my master's in library science and information technology. Um, and I do education. That's all I do. Educational all day long. So, <laughs> right, you know, right for educational background, you know, all that kind of stuff. So okay. cool. Very great background. Okay. One more question about the PI. Like, I'm still curious. <laughs> so what was your number one um, that you can share with us. Number one kind of case that just jumps out at you, keeps you in your mind that was just bizarre and unique. Um, yeah, God, I've got a lot of those. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of the PG version or PG-13 yeah, version. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I had some more, I had some funny ones or just like kind of interesting. I, you know, we used to do a lot of uh, insurance fraud cases where mm-hmm. we were um, putting people under surveillance who were more or less, you know, most of them were pretending to be injured, usually on the yeah. job type scenario. And, um, I can remember, uh, one, one guy who we had, uh, under surveillance for a couple of days and he, um, had gone into court just, just days before to tell everyone that he had no mobility at all. He couldn't stand, he couldn't stand for a few minutes. It hurt too much. He couldn't lay down for a few minutes or too much. He couldn't sit for a few minutes or too much. <laughs> well, you know, I was on surveillance in the next two days. I, I, he must've been a car enthusiast because he, I ended up getting a surveillance video of him, uh, changing 16 different car tires some four different cars oh over different times and you know it was like eight hours of back-breaking labor um yeah. you know and it's just one of those things too where you're, you're watching this person do this and you know that they just stood up yesterday with their hand on the bible basically lying yeah. to yeah. so, um you know those kind of things were interesting and kind of more lighthearted than some of the other stuff i had I'm, sh- I'm sure there's some other stuff that's just terrible nitty-gritty that you you know walk away from you don't want to hear about think about yeah it. that's the truth and unfortunately yeah. that's that's the case you know but uh i think some of the stuff i saw was you know kind of humorous and you know just interesting in general when you're on surveillance like i said you're you've got this unique perspective and um, it's sometimes it's, it's really cool i think one of the most fascinating things that i had experienced was i was a witness for an actual case a court case and that whole process the psychological aspect as a witness or being that much involved in a court case is is fascinating from an author's perspective from a personal perspective is draining (laughs) but from an (laughs) author perspective i'm like i could write about court cases all day this is great stuff (laughs) draw from them yeah yeah so let me ask real quick in education what are you doing currently in educational field uh yeah i I work in special education and a program i run is called intensive academic intervention Mm -hmm. and that's uh looking to help uh high school students with special needs uh, graduate with a modified diploma Fantastic. I love it. Applaud you on that. That's really great. So dear to my heart. So I started out as a para-ed in, in elementary school education, had a one-on-one assignment, which I loved to death. And then it, the Washington State went through the whole process of we're going to have para-eds, you know, become certified or do more schoolwork. And I'm like, well, heck, if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to go finish my, my schoolwork. So I did. Landed in higher ed and love it. And I work every day with adult students. Um, not the same scenario you do, 
but I do mm-hmm. coach students through getting through their bachelors. So, so thank you for your role that you do. It's yeah, a very, <laughs> it's a wonderful, you know, education's wonderful. I love it. You don't get paid much, but it's a wonderful, wonderful role. <laughs> That's, That's what you have to write on the side. You know? Exactly. Yeah. All this stuff on the side. That's right. So let's get started on talking about your work. Um, so first, tell us what genre you're published in, which is another thing I'm absolutely excited about. So a lot of people don't know what some of my reading preferences are on this side. So <laughs> Yes. Uh, so it's a young adult book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, some might call it post-apocalyptic or dystopian. Um, so it's uh, definitely... Um, Kind of right along the lines of you know some of the some of the more popular stuff, even like the Hunger Games or the uh, yeah. Walking Dead and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, fantastic. My husband and I just finished watching the last Hunger Games on TV. It, it ended up being on there last night, and I read all the books when they first came out, and then you know had to watch all the movies. So I was like, yeah. Yeah. so it's funny you brought up Hunger Games because I haven't like read it for years, and then the movies. Yeah. You know, so I actually have the same boat. I, I kind of watched them recently again and re- realized, you know, how good they were. And oh, yeah, uh, you know, the books are awesome, especially the first one. Yeah, yeah, the first one was, was brilliant. I agree on that one. So, post apocalyptic, how did you land in that? Is that what you were reading to start with, or you just, uh, you know, um, more of a personal interest? I think I just kind of like gravitate toward I, I like kind of, you know, those, those kind of uh, those shows, those kind of movies, and yeah. um, I think that, um I've always just kind of had an interest in like survival and, mm-hmm. you know, um, and a lot of times I would, you know, as, as a writer, you're always thinking and I would kind of create these little worlds in my brain of what it'd be like at the end of the world, what it would be really like. And um, so a lot of that was uh, the impetus for this book was trying to create a really realistic version of the end of the world and what that might look like. Um, maybe minus the zombies and minus the vampires and aliens and mm-hmm. all that thing. So mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the, the idea. And um you know, I got some, I got some real, uh, real interest in it uh, after reading a book, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which was, mm-hmm. you know, was a classic book and really great book and definitely not a YA book, but um, post-apocalyptic and just really well-written and uh, got me thinking about, you know, if I did write that with younger characters, what would that look like? So why'd you choose YA? Is it because of the market's so great for YA right now? Or, you know, that's what you remembered, you know, younger reader and, and you were like, I want something great for my future children or whatever. <laughs> you, know, you know, um, I don't know, you know, even when I originally wrote the book, I don't, I'm not sure that I was even focusing too much on writing a YA book. I just had YA characters. I had these gotcha. young characters. Um, so, and a lot of my beta readers were not, uh, young adults. They were, you know, adults and, um, I was getting a lot of positive feedback, you know, early on from, you know, from adults, not necessarily from teens or, or young adults. And uh, so, you know, and then as it's, as the book, you know, progressed and it, and it grew, I think that, um, I think that it really appeals to like a wide range of people, but that, you know, the young adults definitely like it and um, it does have the young characters involved. So I think it, it, it's well for that. It's well for that. I was talking with one of my other authors. She'll be coming out um, in a few weeks. And we she was going through all of the genres with me. She's very learned in the genres, you know, everything. And even though I'm a librarian, I know the genres, but the actual why people write in their genre is interesting. You know, a lot of it has to do with the actual characters in the book, not necessarily that's what they write for. And um, so she was, her and I were talking a lot about young adult really appeals also to a lot of moms and a lot of um females because they don't want to read the tweeny stuff and they don't want to read the female stuff that's out there, which is, can be, you know, racy and, you know, 
right. bomb, right? And so <laughs> young adult really appeals to that. And it's funny for me, young adult really started with me falling in love with it. It's because I had young girls that were reading stuff. And they bring the first, I think one of the first book was Twilight. One of them came home, mom, have you seen Twilight? And I'm like, no, I heard about it, but let me read it before you read Let me preview it, right? <laughs> <laughs> let me see what's going on here. And then kind of got addicted to the whole genre. So very yeah. cool. Cool. So let's talk about your publishing. So are you, are you self-published, indie published or traditionally or a hybrid? Yeah. So I'm traditionally published. Um, was really fortunate to go that route um, and got lucky for lack of a better word. Um, you know, this is the first book I've written. Um, it actually is the first book though in a trilogy. Um, so there'll be dark tomorrow, rise of the crows as the first book. And then we'll have uh, two more that'll come uh, be following up. Not too long. Mm-hmm. Um, they're written in, in editing process now. So, um, Fantastic. <laughs> exciting. so yeah, um, really, you know, I was fortunate to get a, get a really great agent, uh, Mark Gottlieb at Trident media. Who's, um, you know, really one of the top agents, especially for the YA set. And, um, that was kind of above and beyond just to start. And then uh, he was able to get us a good deal. And uh, now I'm working with month nine publishing and Georgia McBride, and that's just gone really well. So fantastic, total great success story. And it's something that I talk a lot about with other authors. I, I interview a lot of independent authors and, you know, they take the independent route because they aren't able to find a great agent to fit them. They, and really it seems like it's, you got to have an agent to get to publication or, you know, some interest in publication, an agent will pick you up, you know, that kind of round. Yeah. So how did you go about that? How did you find him? Did you submit to a bunch of agents? Did he find you? I mean, how does that work for you? <laughs> well, so again, you know, th- this book was a long time in the making. I mean, like I, I started writing this book about eight years ago, you know, finding time at night or in between, you know, whatever lunch breaks, you know how it is. And, uh, mm-hmm. oh, I do. <laughs> so, so I, I really wanted to have it totally done and I wanted to have um, everything very well researched and ready to go before I looked at agents. So that was one step. I know sometimes people will send maybe like their, you know, their drafts. Um, and my advice would be don't send a draft, send, send your 12th draft, not your yeah, first. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I had a pretty polished product. Um, I spent a lot of time researching what a query letter looks like, how to write a good query letter. Um, and then on top of that, I'd spent a lot of time researching agents. Um, mm-hmm. I went, to like agentquery.com and I went to all these different sites where you actually read about the agents, see what kind of books they are uh, interested in, see what kind of books they've actually sold. And so um, I was just, again, lucky, fortunate, whatever you want to call it. Um, I queried eight people before I got Mark, hooked up with Mark. That's a low not, number though. <laughs> I don't think that's normal. No, I, I had a plan. I, I had a plan to query hundred agents. I was going to query yep. you know, two or three agents a week for unlimited weeks until I got somebody. Um, and Mark was, was again though, um, you know, I, I had high expectations. Well, my expectation, Mark was more than I thought I was going to get. You know, I didn't know what type of level I was going to get in terms of agent. I, I was really hoping to get an agent because like you said, um, to go into the publishing world without an agent and try and get a book deal just really daunting um and i you know and again i'm no expert on this this is my first novel but um you know with the, what i've read mostly online and you know especially anecdotal or you know from other authors is you know it can be a grind it can be really frustrating and sort of depressing i think um mm-hmm. i think the goal you know what i would tell a lot of others would be to, to aim for that get that agent um find the right agent and then you know if you can get the agent you've got so much, such a better chance of getting your work in front of the eyes that you need it in front of. And, um, and that's the hardest part. You might have a great manuscript, but if it's not in front of the right person's face, you know, you're stuck. So, 
Super true. And here's the part of your journey that I love that you're saying on this podcast is that a, you know, it was your first book, so it can happen. Right. But you worked on your manuscript until you, I mean, it wasn't your first um, go through on the draft. You waited and you worked on it. You did the research and also um, you allow you, I think you kind of employed some of your PI background skills there to do a lot of research on the right agency and the right place to go to before you started targeting them and writing those letters. So, so those are valuable pieces of advice for any of us out there. (laughs) So we hope that anybody that's listening to the podcast, including myself, if I choose to go agent route, um, you know, and, and traditional publishing, my first book would be that way, but there's a lot of work involved that people don't realize to get to where you're at. So, yeah, I mean, it really was too. And and especially when you, when it's new, I mean, when it's new to you, you're, it's like, you know, you got to learn this whole, industry and how it works and uh you know i'm sure a lot of people don't even you know what's a query letter in the first place exactly Mm -hmm. Um, and you know um that kind of stuff you know the the internet's a wonderful thing though you know if if you've got the time and uh and you've got the desire you really can can get a lot of good information and uh, give yourself a, a better chance of you know getting that deal that you're looking for yeah, certainly. And that's what, you know, the genesis of this podcast came from me just starting to ask authors left and right that I found online because there's not many in my area, right? I found some in my area, but I'm like, what did you do? How did you get published? You know, because in my mind, it was still very much traditional publishing. So I wanted to know how they were doing that, um, mm-hmm. doing my research. And then I got such great advice across the board from traditional publishing to indie publishing to a hybrid of the two that I'm like, there's other people out there. God, I know there's other people like me that are asking these questions. So let's oh, yeah. just do a podcast and see what happens. <laughs> and so here we are seven months in seeing what happens. And it's been quite fun, <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so we talked just a little bit about um, how you, you actually found me for the podcast interview, yes. which is pretty exciting, but you found me through your PR group. And um, so I usually ask individuals on the podcast, some marketing tips. What are some of your marketing tips? Now, I don't know if you do your own marketing or you do your own social marketing, but if you do, do you have any tips for us that are doing that? It's a lot of work. (laughs) So, you know, I'm fortunate to have a whole, you know, publicity marketing team, you know, with month nine publishing. Um, But that doesn't mean that uh, I don't do a lot of my own stuff as well. Um, So of course I've got, you know, the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and um, I'm pretty active on that um, in terms of getting information out. And uh, so, you know, again, social media is big these days. And I think that's, uh, especially if you're a young adult author, you've really got to be um, pretty in tune with that. I would think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like in terms of this scenario, I've got um, an interview with the Ben Bulletin, which I think was the paper that you... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank so, you, Ben Bulletin. <laughs> yeah, I, have, I think I have someone coming up with them and I'm in the works with some of the local bookstores to do some stuff. Um, cool. And then, uh, you know, obviously we're doing this podcast. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's um, you know, you do what you can and try and get your, get your face and your, your name and your book out there. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think from coming from a small press like Month 9 Publishing, I, I think that, you know, there's not there's not unlimited money to spend on, on this stuff. You know, there's not, you can't put a full page ad in the New York times, you know, with, with my book cover on there. So, um, you know, maybe at some point it'll be that route, but I think right now, you know, word of mouth and social media is a great way to just get your name out there. Yeah. I love social media. Now social media has taken over my life, but I do love it. I used to be like on the fringes of social media to teach my students how to use it, all that kind of thing. And then I started this whole author podcast. I think it's become 
almost the only thing I do sometimes <laughs> to the point where I finally committed to myself. I need to hire someone to help me so that I can actually have time to write. So, so I'm just like everybody else. You got to find that time to write. So, so it's, it's fantastic that, um, what I do hear from you that I hear from most authors that come on my podcast, regardless if you're signed on in a contract with a publishing house, you still have to be responsible for getting yourself out there. And that's something I'd be committed to. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about any support groups that you have been involved with, maybe in your local area, writing support groups, or anything that any of those kind of groups or groups online, because I like to leave resources for our listeners of things that maybe they can access as well. If you've had support groups, if not, then cool. Awesome. But if you did, but what were they or who are they? Well, you know, I guess, you know, I'm not sure if I'm unique or, or not, you know, I really haven't had a ton of support group. I, you know, I, um, this was sort of a passion piece that I started writing about, you know, and felt real strongly about. And, um, you know, I read a lot. Um, I, but in terms of like other authors that I connect with, I do connect with, uh, other authors within my publishing, uh, mm-hmm. house there. So I do have a group that I work with, uh, within that, but, you know, here locally, not, not too much going on for me. I, you know, um, I am sort of a, uh, I, li- I like to kind of a lone wolf kind of scenario sometimes too, when I do these things, um, yeah. introvert like the rest of us. <laughs> but, you know, and, and again, I, I feel like, um, when it comes to my, yeah, my writing life, I, I kind of know what I want to do and I, I feel pretty confident in how to get my, my uh, story across. So, um, but that doesn't mean that in the future, I wouldn't want to expand that a little bit, I think, um, and kind of have some connections with uh, other authors. That'd be great. Well, you will be connected at least with the groups and authors right. and Super Confess. So that's your first big group there. Yeah. And um, all you've been authors listening now. So now you got to go hunt down Jeremiah and bring him in your social group. <laughs> Make those connections. You know, I'm a big fan of networking and, and social connecting and, and connecting for, you know, having people to buffer. Matter of fact, I just did something pretty big for myself because I mentor all the time in my professional role. I really came at this whole process of, I don't need a mentor. I can do this on my own. I got this right. right. Seven months in, I'm like, oh, I think I need some help. <laughs> I need somebody to help bounce off my big ideas and my big timeline. And so I reached out to somebody that does mentoring for podcasting and authors. We'll see if she picks me up. She's quite yeah. busy, but I'm like, yeah. I'm just going to throw it out there yeah, and realize I know I need help. And I, I created a group of people around me in my area. And then the podcast has become quite a bit of networking. So yeah. um, I'm a big fan of it. So I know what you're talking about, about feeling like you know what you're doing. You got it down, you know, mm-hmm. but um, maybe you'll join us at the Authors of the Pacific Northwest, our page and... Uh, feel a little bit connected there with us. <laughs> yeah. You know, any bestsellers out there who want to mentor me, you know, that's right. <laughs> Sign them up. And then when you get that, let us know and bring them on the podcast so we can talk about that relationship. <laughs> so a couple more questions before we set the stage for your reading for listeners. Um, first off, what is your inspiration or you can answer it another way. What keeps you motivated? That's a good question. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I think, you know, in terms of writing, um, I love to do it. Um, so when you love something, you're kind of motivated right off the bat. Um, so it's kind of in there internally and intrinsic to the get go. Um, and I feel like, you know, with writing, it's, it's just, it's sharing, you know, and sharing, um, your thoughts and your ideas and, and, um, this, this is whole, this has been a long experience. Like I said, I started writing, you know, the original book eight years ago and, you know, I've got two more ready to come and I've got another whole series of books. I started, as well, kind of another trilogy um, 
whole nother thing. We can do that on a different podcast. Oh, good. We'll definitely make sure we're but, get you lined up for that. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I think my main motivation though is, um, you know, I just enjoy it. So I don't know if I, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not doing it to be you know, rich or famous or anything. I think I, I had a story in my head and I thought, you know what, I, I enjoy writing. I want to write the story. And, um, you know, as I wrote it, I thought, you know, this isn't too bad. This isn't such a bad story. And I thought, you know, maybe other people would, would be interested in reading it too. So I'm um, just getting out there and sharing that story is, uh, is kind of my motivation. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That it's the creative aspect of the story in there that you can't get out of your head. That's your inspiration. (laughs) Cause that's kind of, for me personally, that's where it started too. I had this fabulous story. I have a trilogy that I'm working on. My first book is in near being seeing the light of day yet. Cause I will go through 12 or 15 edits. Yeah. Um, but that's what started with me too. And it's, you know, developed into all this other good stuff. So Okay, so why don't you set the stage for our listeners for your reading and and share with us what you can and the backstory without revealing too much. You know how it is. We don't want to share too much about your story, but we want to share enough to kind of launch us into the setting. And I'm going to go quiet while you do that and while you do your reading. Great. Uh, So uh, the book is called Dark Tomorrow, Rise of the Crow. And uh, it's a story really about uh, two teenagers. Uh, It focuses a little bit more on... um, one of the protagonists named Sawyer, um, who is about 16 at the beginning of the story. And uh, basically the, the premise is that it's sort of the end of the world scenario, the classic virus wiped out the world. Um, but it's, uh, it didn't leave behind, you know, thousands of people. It's left behind like a handful. Um, and so this these uh, two teens kind of find themselves uh, in a scenario where they're um, left to fend for themselves. Um, and without getting too far into it, you know, obviously they, they have a lot of, uh, scenarios that come in, uh, to play where they're, you know, forced to, you know, fight with their own lives and eventually they meet up and kind of fall in love and, um, you know, go from there. I, I we didn't, don't want to spoil too much of it, but, uh, you know, it really is a love story. It's a love story. It's a thriller. Um, it's dystopian. It's post-apocalyptic. I mean, I think that, like I said, it'll appeal to a really wide range of readers. Um, and, you know, girls, uh, teen girls, um, you know, young adult, females, women. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a definitely a novel for guys. I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence. You know, just as a that they themselves, um, at the time, I, you know, I think, it, again, it, it's, it's got um, a lot of different elements that um, would be appealing to many different people. So, um, yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, why don't you launch in and take us on the journey with you for a little bit. All right. All right. Um, So this is Dark Tomorrow, Rise of the Crow uh, by Jeremiah Franklin. This is chapter one. The boy stood at the top of the hill and stared straight ahead, his green eyes narrowing in the hazy afternoon sun. His throat was dry, as always, and he unscrewed the cap of his water bottle and tilted it up to his mouth. He took a single measured sip from the bottle, the faint taste of bleach bitter and lingering on the back of his tongue. He swallowed the water quickly, but took his time as he replaced the cap, careful not to waste a single drop. He clipped the bottle to the side of his backpack and raised his eyes once again. The boy had been to this neighborhood only once before, sometime just before the blackout, and there was no denying that it looked very different now. He forced a smile as he spoke out loud to no one but himself, his voice quiet but loaded with sarcasm. Another beautiful day in paradise. How the hell did I get to be so goddamn lucky? It felt good to use the kind of language that would have earned him a smack in the face had his father been around, but the smile was not long on his lips. Since the beginning, he had held on to the hope that the estates on the hill had somehow escaped the looting and the fires that had followed the blackout, that the rich people's money and the tall gates that money had bought had proved their worth, 
But now when the boy finally arrived, he knew that he had been wrong. And worse than that, he had been naive. In the end, the gates had not held, and the pristine homes that once lined the street were now little more than blackened skeletons of charred wood and metal. The boy was not exactly sure why it bothered him so much this time. He had seen it all before. It had been the same in almost every neighborhood he had come across in the last year. The withered bodies of those few few who had dared to stay behind, the homes burned, the roads littered with abandoned vehicles and debris. He knew that it was simply the way it was now, but for some reason, this time it felt different. This time it hurt more. The truth was that the fall of humankind had been nothing like the boy had been told it would be, and in some peculiar yet uniquely teenage way, he felt as if he had been cheated. His generation had been conditioned from birth to expect the spectacular, to always presume the fantastic, but Armageddon had not come with a brilliant flash or the blockbuster finale. The machines had not taken over. There had been no zombie outbreak, no hostile alien invasion. There had been no global thermal nuclear war. No doomsday meteor, no four horsemen of the apocalypse. In reality, the final days had been nothing like Hollywood had promised him they would be. And as the boy looked over the burned out homes and the piles of garbage that would hopefully contain his next meal, he knew firsthand that the end of the world had been anything but spectacular. He continued walking down the street for another full block before he finally came to a stop beneath the shredded fronds of a dead palm tree. A dozen or more crows were picking through a pile of garbage a short distance away and they stopped to eye him suspiciously as he bent down and picked up a good-sized rock. It seemed amazing to the boy that of all the creatures who had survived the virus, the blackout, and the chaos that ensued, it was the crows that had fared the best. And while the boy had not seen anything more than a single living dog in more than a month's time, the number of crows seemed to have multiplied exponentially, and the boy stood up and tested the weight of the rock in his hand. The nearest bird was at least 40 feet away, but the boy was deaf with the throw, and he took several steps forward and let the rock fly. The stone hummed past the head of the largest crow, missing by mere inches, and the boy laughed out loud, his green eyes flashing brightly. Ha! Just miss. Next time you won't be so lucky, filthy crow. Despite the gnawing hunger in his belly, the boy had no intention of eating any crow he might kill that day, or any other day for that matter. The bird's meat was technically edible, but the boy had discovered early on that raiding houses and rummaging through the trash was a much more efficient means of feeding himself, and he continued moving forward. The boy had no idea how or why the heaps of garbage had come to rest where they now were, but he approached the nearest pile with unabashed hope and slipped his arms deep into the muck. His hands moved in tandem, unseeing fingers feeling, sifting, sorting, and it was not long before he felt something round and familiar roll across his palm. He closed his fingers tight and pulled his find up from the garbage and into the sunlight. He had found nothing more than a single shriveled apple, his skin now brown and desiccated, but the boy smiled nonetheless, his mouth watering. He whispered quietly to himself, his words drawn out, his voice mimicking the announcer on an old game show he remembered watching as a child. Jackpot! We have a winner! He shoved the apple into his backpack without hesitation and continued searching, reciting one of his father's familiar sayings as he worked. Take whatever you can get whenever you can get it. Isn't that what the old bastard used to say? The boy had only begun to talk to himself in the last month or so, and he was growing more comfortable with the idea each passing day. At first he thought it meant that he had begun to go mad, but the boy had seen firsthand what that looked like and even what that smelled like. And he figured at the very least, he was no more insane than anyone else who had stayed alive for this long. In truth, the boy was remarkably stable for all that he had seen and done. But it was also true that he had been uniquely well-prepared for such an existence. For better or for worse, the boy's father had substituted military-style training and discipline for love. And the lessons had been both simple and painful. Follow your instincts. Compartmentalize your feelings. Train to exhaustion. Survive at all costs. 
Some would have called it abuse, but to the boy, the intense physical and mental training that he had been put through at such a young age was all that he knew. And in that respect, even he could not deny that his father had prepared him well. The boy's name was Sawyer. He was big for his age, and although he was thin from lack of food, his wide shoulders and large frame were built to carry muscle. He was attractive in a rugged way, his hair an unremarkable brown, his nose a bit crooked, his lips a half size too big. However, it was his eyes that truly distinguished the boy. Set widely across his face, they were a sparkling shade of emerald green that seemed to glow in the vanishing light. And although the boy was barely 16, one look into his eyes betrayed the fact that deep down inside, he felt much, much older. He was dressed in the only clothing he had, a pair of warm, dark blue denim jeans and a black t-shirt with the outline of a redwood tree and the words renew, reuse, recycle, emblazoned in faded green on the front. He thought his t-shirt's mantra was humorously ironic, considering it was now his only option. His feet were wrapped in duct tape covered hiking boots and the bill of his baseball cap was torn and slightly crooked. On his shoulder, he carried a Mossberg pump action shotgun and on his back, a brown leather pack loaded with gear. A long, dull machete knife was tethered to one side of the pack and a dented gunmetal gray water bottle hung from the other. Inside the backpack, he carried a variety of items that he had deemed essential, including a bottle of bleach, a small flat-edge crowbar, a hatchet, a pair of binoculars, some random hand tools, and a makeshift grappling hook with 30 feet of knotted rope. Wrapped in a plastic shopping bag is a roll of duct tape, a roll of electrical tape, a thin plastic tarp, some clean bandages, several cotton rags, and a nearly full box of double-zero shotgun shells. The two small pockets on the side of the pack were equally loaded. One contained a stainless steel buck knife, a Leatherman multi-tool, a nine-volt battery, and a sewing kit. The other pocket held a length of aluminum wire, a handful of steel wool, and a single flashlight. Of all the items that he carried, it was only the ammunition, the shotgun, and the water that truly mattered to him. The single box of double-zero shotgun shells and the 12-gauge had been among the few items that his father had not taken with him when he left, and the boy carried the loaded weapon both out of necessity and as a cold reminder that he was quite literally all alone in the world. And while it was true that in the beginning he had used the weapon only in self-defense, it had taken only a few days without water before the boy had been forced to take more extreme measures. Right or wrong, Sawyer had discovered that taking the precious liquid from one of the few remaining survivors was often his only option, and more than a few men had either given up their water or taken their last breath looking down the barrel of his shotgun. In truth, the boy took no pleasure in the act of taking another's life, but he had learned. Oh, but if he had learned only one thing over the past year, it was that water was not only something to hope for and something to search for, but also, when it came down to it, something to kill for. Nevertheless, the boy also needed to eat, and he continued scavenging for another half hour before he finally gave up and wiped his hands down the front of his jeans. He could see the fading sun would soon be dipping below the horizon, and he was thinking of the long walk back down the hill when he slowly became aware that the crows had gone uncharacteristically silent. He looked around and saw nothing. No signs of movement, no obvious threats. Only the dead palm trees swing quietly in the warm, dry wind. Still, the boy could feel that something was not quite right. But before he could reach over to slip the shotgun into his hands, he was suddenly and violently spun off his feet, his right shoulder erupting in blinding pain. Sora fell beside the pile of garbage and looked over at his shoulder in confused horror, gasping in utter disbelief. What the hell? What the hell? Buried deep in the meat of his shoulder was a heavy 100-grain broadhead, the long black shaft protruding into the sky, the bright red and blue fletchings of the arrow bobbing up and down with the heating of his chest. Sora was more than just surprised to see an arrow lodged in his arm. The boy had not seen another living human being in over a full month, but it was not until a second arrow whipped by only inches from his head that he realized he was in very serious trouble. His mind was spinning, and all he could think was that he had to find cover, and fast. He peeked above the mound of trash and tried to think. There was a burned-out Chevy truck resting 20 yards to his right, and a cluster of dead palm trees about 10 yards to his left. 
He could easily make it to the trees, but they offered little cover. He looked back at the truck and noticed that there was a break in the wall just beyond the vehicle. The boy took a deep breath. He had no good options, but he knew that he had to move. He counted down from three, got his feet underneath himself, and then burst out from behind the pile of garbage, spraying the full 20 yards and reaching the truck just as another arrow skidded off the vehicle's hood and whistled in the sky above him. Sawyer crouched down behind the truck and tried to catch his breath. Against his better judgment, he looked over at his injured shoulder once again. The arrow was still there, dangling grotesquely from his arm, and a steady flow of dark red blood was now leaking from under his sleeve. There was no question that the boy was scared, but he tried to fight the rising panic to control his thoughts like his father had taught him. He closed his eyes for a moment, ignoring the pain, focusing his mind. Sawyer had been taught that his fear could be choking of his pulse, the hair standing up on the back of his neck. It was almost as if a switch had been flipped somewhere inside the way and bending with the brain energy. The shock of the shoulder and one unbroken window of the truck, his eyes scanning every inch of the street. A minute ticked by, then another. He was so keyed up that he was almost shaking, but still he saw nothing. Another minute passed. Sawyer looked down at his shoulder. The adrenaline was masking the pain, but blood was now running freely down his arm and collecting in a small pool at his feet. He knew right then that he could not wait much longer, but he suddenly caught a flash of movement at the end of the street, and the boy's eyes instinctively narrowed. It took him another minute, but then, just as he was about to give up, Sawyer saw him. Crouched in the shadows below a cluster of dead eucalyptus trees was the fuzzy yet unmistakable silhouette of a man holding a bone arrow, and the boy whispered quietly under his breath, I see you, Bo- Bowman. I see you now, Bowman. I see you now. The tree line where the Bowman lay in wait was at least 50 yards from where Sawyer now stood, and the boy quickly began to calculate his options. He could either stand and fight or cut and run, and even though the boy wanted nothing more than revenge at that very moment, he was no fool. The break in the wall was just across the street, and, all, and, and he had lost more than enough blood already. He was not happy, but he had made his decision. It was time to run. He took the moss spring as one good hand aside. All right, Bowman, let's see if you can hit a moving target this time. So I took one last breath and quietly counted down from three. Three, two, one, go. With every last ounce of speed he could muster, the boy exploded out from behind the truck, raising the shotgun with one hand and firing blindly toward the trees as he ran. He knew that the single spray of buckshot was useless except to buy him a half second of time, and he could only hope that it would be enough as he put his head down and raced toward the break in the wall. At the end of the street, the bowman barely blinked as the shotgun blast spread out harmlessly in the trees above. But seeing that he had one last chance to hit his target, the man took in a deep breath, pulled back on the bowsprit, and let the bolt fly. With the arrow cutting through the air at more than 400 feet per second, Surrey had no time to react, and there was little he could do but flinch as he felt the arrow strike home. Still, the break in the wall was only steps away, and before the bowman could draw his bow again, the boy slipped behind the wall to safety, one bloody staff still dangling from his shoulder, another fresh arrow lodged deep in the side of his backpack. Awesome. Now we have to read the rest of it to find out what happens. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. Jeremiah, thank you for transporting us into post-apocalypse without zombies and, <laughs> and vampires. And, you know, awesome. Very, very good. So listeners, if you loved this beginning to this story, go find Jeremiah on, on the show notes, get his book, write a review, make sure you write a review. And um, thank you so much for being here. We'll bring you back when your other books in the trilogy come out and your other trilogy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had a great time. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. 
you can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.